0: we are up to Mishnah 4 of chapter 1 of Perti Avos. And I'll read the Mishnah quickly. And then we'll break it down piece by piece. Yossi ben Yo'ezer ish Tzreda Yosi ben Yochanan ish Yerushalayim kiblu mehem. Yossi ben Yo'ezer and uh, the, the man of Tzreda and Yosi the son of Yochanan, the man of Jerusalem, they receive the tradition from them, from Shimon and Antidnus. We start off with Moses and we're going through the lineage of, of the tradition, transmission of Torah. The next leaders of the Jewish people are two. We'll speak about that in a second. Yossi ben Yezer and Yossi ben Yochanan. And they each had uh, their own Mishnah. So Mishnah four is going to be Yossi ben Yohezer and Mishnah five is going to be Yossi ben Yochanan. So Yossi ben Yohezer ish Tzreda Omer. Yossi ben Yohezer, the man of Tsreda. He says, Let your house be a meeting place for the sages. And you should become dirty by the dust of their feet. And you should drink thirstily their words. It's a little bit of background of who these people are. There is going to be a dramatic shift in the leadership structure of the Jewish nation uh, with Yossi ben Yo'ezer and Yossi ben Yochanan. Previously, you had the high priest. Obviously, in ancient times or even in in earlier times, they had the king as well. Now they're, they're, for the most part, going to be ruled by foreign kings. And even the Jewish kings are going to be foreign kings as well. The Hasmoneans are very quickly going to become Sadducees. And they're going to be like a foreign influence from within. But because, but because, uh, of the shifting reality on the ground, there's going to be a change in the leadership structure and the z- structure of the nation. There's going to be, uh, five groups of what's, they call them Zukos, which means pairs, uh, pairs of leaders, like uh, kind of co-CEOs, where you have two people who are headlining the nation. One of them is called the Nasi, which means the president of the Sanhedrin, and one's the Afbezdin, the, the head of the Bezdin of the court. One of them is more like the political, religious political leader, and one is the religious halachic leader. And there's various reasons as to why this, this, uh, various reasons theorized as to why this change happened. Uh, but, uh, some of the historians, uh, they posit that the high priest he used to be responsible. He was the uh, go-between between the nation and the overlords. So you have the Greeks. We said there were, originally there was Alexander, and then there was the Ptole- Ptolemyon, the Egyptian Greeks, and then eventually the Seleucid, the Assyrian Greeks. But uh, one of the high priests, actually the son of Shimon Tzadok, who was the high priest after him, he decided – to collect the taxes from the Jewish people, but not to pass it on to the Greek authorities, which is almost a declaration of war from a subjugated people to not pass the tax on to the king. And the Ptolemy, the king, when he was told of Chonyo, who was the name of the high priest, his refusal to give the tax monies to the Egyptian Greeks, he essentially threatened war. And uh, when the Greeks come and threaten war, it's actually very dangerous. But there was a Hellenist, a crafty Hellenist by the name of Yossi Bentuvia, uh, who was also the nephew of Honyo, and he decided to go to Egypt and to negotiate with the Ptolemy. And he came to Egypt and he brought lots of lavish and extravagant gifts And he basically convinced – he lobbied successfully to convince the king, the Greek king in Egypt, to allow him, to appoint him to be the tax collector. The tax collector is a very pivotal job because they are – they they are granted taxation authority and it's also – highly susceptible to corruption because all they have is a certain head tax that they have to pay to the Greeks. Whatever's left over, they could pocket and that's what they will frequently do And which is why typically the high priest who's the spiritual leader of the nation, someone who's responsible for the well-being of his people and someone who has also the spiritual aptitude to do so, they would be in charge of this very important role because they're less likely to be corrupted. Once it's given to the Hellenist, who is money-hungry, and Talamai gives him 3,000 armed guards to go collect taxes, it's a very dangerous situation. And he goes to the city of Ashkelon, which is on the coastal uh, uh, part of Israel, uh, on the Mediterranean, and he, with his army, and this is a Hellenist, right? This is not someone who is is, uh, very favorable and amenable to the masses of people, and he starts demanding exorbitant taxes. And pocketing most of the money. And in the city of Ashtalon, the, the residents refused to pay this outrageous taxes. 20 of the leading Jews of the city were actually executed by this new tax collector and his uh, Greek cronies and this various punishments meted out to other Jews in other places. And you have this war where a lot of the Hellenists are joining this new camp of the tax collectors and they're rampaging through Jewish towns. And this is going to be indicative of what's going to happen over the next several centuries in the second commonwealth, the second temple era, where you have this major faction of Jews that are very wealthy and very powerful and connected to the Greeks and to eventually the Romans as well. And they are a cancer within because there's a civil war where the masses of Jews are still obedient to the Sanhedrin, to the rabbis, and a small faction but a very powerful minority are Hellenists who want nothing to do with tradition, want to Greekify the nation as much as possible, and are going to attach uh, the nation uh, uh, to tatters. And as a result of these new challenges, the decision was made to strip the Kohen Gadol of a lot of his responsibilities and to pass that on to the two most outstanding Torah scholars of the nation, and they're being called the Zugos. Zug, Zug means a pair. And, and the idea is to, 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 to bolster the role of the rabbis and the great rabbis of the time and to also diminish the role of the high priest. And as we know, throughout the Second Temple era, there's going to be a uh, – a chronic corruption in the second in the in the in the in the high priesthood. There's going to be uh, it's going to be sold to the highest bidder. Usually, it was the most righteous coin was nominated, and now it's going to be many of them are going to be Sadducees or Hellenists who just want to do it for the thrill of it, and they're going to bribe and they're going to cajole and they're going to pay their way to becoming a high priest. So it's – it's it's it, it, a spiritual office is now becoming a political ploy and to try to mitigate that, the rule of the Zugos were instituted and they're going to be the ones who are going to try to uh, stabilize and to solidify the spiritual status of the nation. Uh, so the first two Zugos, uh, they're the ones come after Shimonatotic and Antigonus, the last ones to have total authority – a total leadership over the nation, the first Zugos are Yossi ben Yoezer and Yossi ben Yochanan. In fact, uh, in line with this devolvement of the nation, these two are the first to have a machlokas, the first to have a dispute. As we get further away from Sinai, the likelihood of making mistakes obviously grows. Uh, but until this point in history, until the second or third century before the Common Era, there was never a halachic dispute amongst the rabbis. You have disputes that are settled, but this was a dispute that was not settled until later, and for a significant amount of time, there was a disagreement uh, as to what the exact disagreement is, again, to show how minor the disagreements were. What is the halacha with respect to smicha on Yomtef, which is English for saying, does the Kohen place his hands on top of the animal on a festival or not we know that there's a part of a sacrifice putting hands on a, on, a, on, a, on a on a sacrifice on the animal is that done on holidays or not obviously it's a very minor rule, but there was still nonetheless a debate that was not settled to the times of Hillel and Shammai who are the last of the Zugos, several hundred years later uh, but again, I think this does dovetail with some of the themes we've spoken about in previous Mishnas, that as we progress in time, there's a need to expand the rabbinic leadership and uh, as as a result of the spiritual development of the people, both because we're going further away from Sinai and also because of the external factors of, of what the situation of the nation was at the time, uh, that caused a degradation from generation to generation. Okay, so the second Mishnah of our book, the Mishnah of Shimon HaTzadik, of Shimon the Righteous, that taught us that there's three pillars upon which the world stands. Torah, Avoda, worship of God, and Gemilas Chasadim and kindness, loving kindness. The last Mishnah, Antidinus, he told us how to do Avoda properly, how to worship God properly. You worship God, it's the attitude that you have when you approach worshiping God. This Mishnah is going to teach us the Torah element of Shimon Atzarek. Shimon told us that, that Torah is what upholds the world. How do we access Torah? How do we maximize Torah? How do we deepen our connection with Torah? Comes along Yossi ben Yuez and tells us three instructions. Make our house a meeting place for the sages. We should sit by the dust of their feet and we should drink their words thirstily. So what's interesting is that these instructions, first of all, none of them actually says study Torah. It says make your house a meeting place, sit by the foot of the teachers, and drink thirstily their words. It's interesting, like you would think the most basic element of gaining Torah, studying it. So that's an interesting point to think to, to think about. But also, all three instructions of Yossi Ben Yoazer relate to a person's relationship With a teacher, with a scholar, make your house a meaning place for scholars, for teachers, for Tamil hachamim, for scholars, for sages. Sit by the dust of their feet, right? Submit yourself to study from a teacher. And lastly, drink thirstily their words. So it's interesting that I think the most fundamental teaching that he's trying to convey is that when you want to study Torah, you look backwards, you go back to the ancients. And it's remarkable how Torah, like the the peak of Torah was at Sinai, was with Moshe. And we're always referencing back towards that. And it's the only discipline where the better way, the, the way to better your understanding, your grasp of it is to look backwards, not forwards. It's the only time where we say that the ancients had a greater grasp of the subject than we do. And There's no one today that compares to the Go to Vilna, who died in 1797. No one. And his knowledge of Torah was so complete, it's astounding. But even the Go to Vilna, if you compare him to the Rambam, who was several hundred years prior, he was the Rambam was on a different level. And you compare the Rambam to Rabbi Kiva, who was a thousand years earlier different worlds and remember even to Moshe different worlds and every other discipline it's the opposite the the, the, the further along the path of progress you get the more understanding so we look at uh, I don't know Copernicus yes he was a great scientist uh, sure or look back to, to Newton sure but now we know so much more and now we've advanced so much more and now we've already disproven a lot of Einstein what Einstein said uh, and and uh, that's just the nature of the beast. Yet somehow Torah is the other way around. That's the first uh, uh, insight. But moreover, how do we gain Torah? So what are we told? Make your house a meeting place for the scholars. What is my house where I live, my residence, my domicile? What does that have to do with studying of Torah? What it, I think that what it's hinting at is that, unlike other pursuits, there's no really there's no easy way to succeed and be done with with respect to Torah. You want someone, and every other goal someone has. You want to write a book. You want to become a millionaire. You want to achieve X, Y, or Z. That's not in Torah. You can do it. You can finish it. You can retire. Here we're told that this to gain Torah. You have to pursue it tenaciously and continuously. You have to bring it to your house. Torah is not something that you relegate to the study hall or to the synagogue or to the classroom. Torah has to be with you at all times. And you have to turn your house where you live into a place that's a meeting. What would a meeting place for scholars look like? It would be primed for whatever – what scholars do when they meet. Talk Torah. You have to turn your home into a meeting place for scholars which means you have to make your home a place not necessarily that you have to invite scholars. You have to make it into a meeting place that scholars would be comfortable in. Remember, it doesn't say – it doesn't say – Invite scholars to your house. It says, turn your house into a place that scholars would, oh, what do you mean? I, li- I live far away. I'm, um, I live in, I don't know, humble Texas or Kingwood. It's not, all the scholars are elsewhere. I'm, how can I invite, it doesn't say invite scholars to your house. It says, make your house a house that scholars would be comfortable in. Because if you do that and you live in your house, you're there most of the time. It's very likely that being surrounded, being in the conditions where scholarship and Torah thrives, you yourself will thrive as well. And additionally, suppose you have a meeting of scholars in your house. You're not a scholar. You're not a sage. What do you know about what's going on? It doesn't say to study by the scholars. It says just to have a place that's worthy of meaning. But even if you have the meaning, what then? Another insight. Even if you don't understand what they're saying, still, being exposed to an atmosphere of Torah is going to affect you. There is, at the end of this book of Pertre Evos, there's 48 ways to get Torah. Forty-eight ways, forty-eight paths to wisdom of Torah. One of them is called Shmias HaOzen, hearing, listening of the ear. Now we know that we use our ear to listen, but the fact that it's listening of the ear—it's kind of a strange thing. You listening, listening to Torah, listening of the ear. So what this means is that even if the only organ that is encountering the Torah is your ear. It doesn't at all make a pit stop in your brain. It goes in one ear and out the other. Still, being exposed to it is going to change who you are. And we don't understand how point A brings to point B. But here was an amazing insight. Yosemite is telling us, just be exposed to Torah and it will penetrate and change you. And I saw another one of the commentators who I think is a very powerful idea. He says, you know, we talk about sages, the Rambam, the Rambam died 800 years ago. It's a long time ago, 1204, 813 years ago. What do we have? What connection do we have to him? So the Talmud tells us that whenever you say the words of a scholar, you say Torah, I quote Rashi, I quote Yoshi Ben Yuzer. In his grave, his lips are moving. That's what the Talmud says. In the in his grave, the great scholar in his grave, his lips are moving. Now, if we take a sonograph and we take uh, some sort of geological survey of Rashi's grave, and we you know we see his bones, it's very unlikely we'll see his lips moving. But what that means is, is that someone has a spiritual connection to their Torah even after they die. And the way the Talmud presents it is that their the lips are moving in uh while they are interred while they are uh, in, in their burial place. But what this means is that the, the Torah of someone's scholar is still alive. You know, the scholar, the scholar is alive in his Torah and he's still alive through his Torah. Not just alive in the, the spiritual world, alive in this world as well. So, I have books of Torah in my house. You know, I remember there was a, one of my cousins. Uh, he liked to buy a lot of Torah books. And he was a scholar. He studied a lot, but he had loads of books, bookshelves full of books. And his wife didn't understand it. She said to him, "Listen, get one book, and you finish it, and move on to the next one. Why do you need to have so many?" And that we used to laugh at it. This is what his wife's question was to him. Um, it just, you know, because you have to have lots of them. You know, that that's just the the attitude of a man. The woman was like, "Just finish one and move on to the next one." But I think I think he has a point. When you have the books of the Rambam in your house, his Torah is still alive in this world, not just in the spiritual world. So what you're doing when you put the Rambam on your shelf, you can't even read Hebrew, but you put, either, put the Rambam on your shelf, it's almost as if, this is what the Ruach Haim says this, the Ruach Haim says this, it's almost as if you're just invited your into your home, the Rambam. And you, you have a Talmud, a set of Talmud in your house. Well, maybe you should buy one book at a time, you know, the... Current, the current publication of, of, of the Art School Talmud is 73 volumes, and it's somewhat pricey. So maybe you should only have one. But there is this idea of filling your home with Torah and bringing a spiritual power into your world. Whatever you fill your house with, that is what surrounds you Spiritually we may not be able to study all of it. I have a whole set of Talmud in my house. Have I finished it? Not yet. But I feel like the fact that the, the Talmud is there with me and the Ramam is there with me and all these, all this, that's a fulfillment of making my house a house where scholarship can potentially thrive and that will affect you as well. What's the next thing it tells us? Sit by the dust of their feet. This is kind of a strange teaching. What does it mean to sit by the dust of the feet of the scholars? So some of the commentaries point out that in ancient times, they would have lectures, just like they have today, Torah lectures, Talmudic lectures by the great teachers. And the teachers would sit on a chair, but everyone else would sit on the floor, would sit on the dust. And the simplistic idea is, well, there's two ways that actually the word misavate in Hebrew can mean either avat, which means dust, but it could also mean to struggle. So I see some of the commentaries go with the opinion that it goes dust, that it means dust, or it means struggle. So let's let's explain both of them. When you sit on the floor and the dust at their feet, what you're doing is you're first of all, you're according to honor to your teacher. You're saying, he's gonna sit in the chair and I'm gonna sit on the floor and you're submitting yourself to them, you're willing to accept the Torah from your teacher, which again does go with the same theme that we're trying to look backwards to find the Torah of yesteryear is the most perfect one. But there's a whole string of teachers, a whole theme in Jewish scholarship and Jewish literature about the importance of having a Torah teacher. Some people think it was a guy in the Soviet Union where Torah study was forbidden. So he got his hands on a copy of the Pentateuch, of the Five Books of Moses, and he wanted to fulfill it. So he got to this passage that appears four times: "To wear t'ot to wear t'filin." But nowhere does it say what t'filin looks like. So he had to make his own, and he got kind of close, but very far. He did made boxes between, put them between his eyes but he had no idea what to put inside the boxes. So he picked random sections of the Torah that he thought were very uh, important, very meaningful. But this shows that like if, without our predecessors, we know nothing about Torah. And there's many teachings that talk about how important it is. It's even more important to find a teacher who's going to teach you than to study yourself. Because that's more likely to bring you towards Having a deep understanding of of, of of the truth, my grandfather used to quote the Talmud in the book of Makos. In the book of Makos, it's divided up into three sections. But the middle section talks about someone who kills accidentally, an accidental murder, manslaughter. So someone who kills, someone is a murderer in Torah law. That's an executable offense, as it is in America. Well, what if someone kills accidentally? They were a little bit negligent and someone else died. So they get punished with exile. They have to go to the city of refuge. But the verse tells us that they have to live there, which means that it has to be a, when, even though they're in exile, you have to make sure that they can live there. They could flourish there. So what if there's no food there? Well, then they can't live there. So, you have to, so the, nation has to ensure that there's plenty of food and there's enough jobs and there's enough protection from enemies, right? It has to be a place where people could flourish and can have life. Says so the Talmud, if you have a student who, God forbid, kills accidentally, they were a little bit negligent, they fell off a tree, and they killed someone tragically, but they're a student and they're going to go to the town and they have to leave, abandon their teacher. Says the Talmud, if the student goes to exile, the teacher has to go with him. Why? Because someone needs it for their life, right? You said the, the verse says you have to live there. Everything that's necessary for someone to live has to be brought to the city of refuge. Well, how can someone live without a teacher, without a Torah teacher? Therefore, the teacher has to pick up and move as well. He has to get up and move from his town and go bring his academy with him to the city of refuge. And says the Rambam, the way he explains this, that the life of someone who is a scholar and someone who wants to be a scholar without Torah, well, that's like death. And and the only way to have Torah is with the teacher and therefore the teacher has to go because otherwise the verse won't be fulfilled. The verse says that someone will have to live there. It's interesting. One of the commentaries asks, wait a minute, maybe there's a teacher in the city of refuge. So someone lives in city A and he kills accidentally. He has to move to city B, the city of refuge. Well, in that city, there could be this many Torah scholars. Why do you have to take his teacher and uproot him and his family to move him to the city of refuge? And he answers, well, every teacher has his own style. And some people, they flourish under a particular style and others like a different style. So what this means is, is that your life, it, it's an existential threat to your life if you have a teacher. You don't have a teacher, of course. But even if you have a teacher, but it's not your right style, it doesn't perfectly jive with the kind of flow that you like, that doesn't speak to you, that too can imperil your spiritual life. And here we see, like this idea of submitting yourself to the teacher, it's a very powerful idea. We know that the story of the, of the golden calf, simply you read it is the, the Jewish people wanted to make for themselves an idol. That's how you read it simply. But if you read it very critically – and as the commentaries point out, primarily the Ramban in the end of Exodus, which in the story of the golden calf, it seems very clear is that what they actually wanted was a replacement for Moshe. Moshe wasn't there. Moshe was their teacher. And they're sitting and waiting with bated breath. When's he coming down? He's supposed to be here. He's a few hours late. We need a replacement. This shows already from the beginning, it's, even though it's an episode that describes the misconduct of the nation, but this also shows their attitude as they needed a Moshe to teach them, which is an interesting idea. So that's one interpretation of this. Sit by the dust of their feet, accept Torah from a teacher. In the Ruach haim he presents it in the opposite way. He understands v'have mis'avek b'afarad le'em from the word v'ye'avek. In a few weeks, we're going to read about Jacob who has a struggle with the angel. It turns out to be the angel of Esau. But the word is, and a man struggled with him. They, had a, they, had, they were wrestling with each other. So that's the same word over here. So says the Ruach Chaim here, what this means is that you should struggle with your teacher. If you don't like what he says, you better tell him. Because otherwise you'll won't learn and he won't improve. And he tells us that in other places, the Torah, studying of Torah is called a war. And those who study Torah are warriors. And a student and a teacher and a father and a son, when they study and they disagree, they start fighting and battling. And then each one, each one of them should not forfeit. Unless they're convinced that their opponent, so to speak, is correct. And we should think, we think maybe if there's a teacher. I know no one here thinks like that. But some people think if there's a teacher, well, you got to accept their word as gospel. No. If you are convinced that you're right, if you're convinced that your argument is more correct of an interpretation of what the Torah is saying, you would better stand up for yourself because otherwise you won't learn. And there's an addendum perhaps we could say here is that what's the objective of Torah? Torah is to bring us to perfection, perfection of ourselves, of our intellect. What this implies is that our perspective may be a little bit askew. It may be crooked. We may have a crooked way of thinking. Well, the Torah is from God. The Torah is the straight way of thinking. And therefore, when we impose our thinking on the Torah and we see they're not necessarily aligned, we see there's a little bit of friction, a conflict, that's an opportunity for us to straighten our mind. And if we don't insist to try to understand why we're wrong, or maybe why someone else is wrong, we'll never come to reach the truth of Torah, and thus we'll never be able to acclimate and harmonize our mind, our intellect, with God's intellect with Torah. The objective of Torah is to synchronize the way we think and the way God thinks. God says, I'm going to impart my brain into Torah, you Plug your brain in, and wherever it doesn't match up, you straighten yourself out. And thus, you're about to start thinking the way I do. And that's why, by the way, it's common for people who have a dilemma to go to a Torah scholar to ask them their dilemma. Why? Are they a prophet? No. Do they, are they like the Kohain Gadol, the high priest who has the Urimatubim, that they can find out what God wants? No. But they have godly intellect. Because they came to Torah with their own intellect and they upgraded it to the higher version, to the godly intellect. And thus, you could ask them a question on any area of the world. They're able to approach it with a, with a sharper, with a more acute intellect because theirs was upgraded through Torah. But if you're not going to push and pursue and find out why you don't agree – you're never going to manage to access the higher levels of Torah of straightening out your mind, of, of improving, of deepening, of making your thought patterns more profound and more sharp. You're never going to achieve that with Torah. Therefore, what the, what the, what the Mishnah is telling us according to this angle is that you should struggle with your teacher, You should argue with your teacher because only through that process will you achieve what the objective of Torah is. And finally – Mishra tells us that you should drink thirstily their words. So, so the commentaries tell us that uh, the way it's presented by some is that it's like drinking salt water. When someone's really thirsty and they, all they have is salt water, they drink the salt water, but that actually just compounds the problem. It makes them even more thirsty. And Rabbi Yonah, he tells us is that someone who is already has drunk themselves, they're actually thirstier. The Torah has this. Counterintuitive quality to it that the more you drink, the thirstier you are. Uh, you're never quite content or sate with it. And therefore, someone who is replete with Torah, they are actually someone who is very desirous of Torah. Whereas someone who is empty from Torah, they're actually very sate. And this is kind of uh, like, again, it, it doesn't work the way you would seem. You know, if someone's hungry and they eat breakfast, They're not hungry anymore. If someone is full, they don't want breakfast. That's how it works kind of in our world. But in the spiritual world, it's the opposite. The Talmud tells us in the book of Brachos, The way God works is not the way that man works. Why? The way man works, an empty vessel is able to hold. A full vessel is no longer able to to hold. Whereas God, it's the opposite. A full vessel, that's able to hold more. An empty vessel, that's not able to hold anything. What this means is that if our vessel, we're a vessel, if our vessel is full of Torah, then we're thirsty, we can actually hold more Torah. If our vessel is empty of Torah, then Torah cannot be harbored within this. And it's interesting that there is a teaching in various places in the Talmud that describe how the Yitzhara works, the Yitzhara works. It tells us that there is a, a small organ that, again, does not work the way you would anticipate. Masbio rave, marivo savea. If you, if you, if you satiate it, well, then it's hungry, and if you starve it, then it's satiated. Uh, additionally, there's a verse in scripture: Ohev kasev lo kesef. Someone who loves money will never be satiated with money. Says the Talmud, whoever has mono wrote some sign. If you have a hundred, you want two hundred. If you have two hundred, you want four hundred. You're never quite satiated. Which again, seems counterintuitive. If you wanted something and you got it, well, okay, you should be happy now. But no, that just pushes it, kicks the can down the line. You know, they say that the people that are, if someone's a billionaire, but they want two billion, then they're actually a thousand, a billion dollars in the red. Whereas if you only have hundred and you want two hundred, you only have hundred in the red. So ironically, you're lacking. You're lacking less. The smaller you have, but that's because there's a tendency that what the Einzirah does on the uh, on the physical, so to speak, plane. He says, okay, these physical desires you have them and you just compound them. And then we have in the spiritual plane what the soul is saying. Spiritual is will actually just deepen your desire for them. And what this is telling us is, dream thirstily their ways. What's telling us is that you, you have a, an, a choice to make. There's going to be an arena of your life that you're never going to be satisfied in. That, that's fixed. The only question is, is it going to be in the spiritual plane or in the physical plane, the material plane? Is it going to be in your body's realm or in your soul's realm? Is it going to be in this world? Is it going to be in the next world? Which area are you, are you going to choose to stockpile? That's the only question. And here what it's telling us is, is that all you need to do is get the engine started. Drink thirstily their words. Once you begin this process, it starts to compound on its own. Once you get a little thirsty and then you drink, you get a little thirstier and then you drink and then you get even thirstier. And that keeps on going all the way till you're, till you're done. And what are you done when you die and you're still thirsty? But the point is, is that the absolute Accomplishment in Torah is going to be astronomical. What this is, again, going back to the beginning of the Mishnah, Torah, you have to work your whole life to get it. You have to fill your whole house with it. You have to study from a teacher. You have to never stop. Well, if if we can never get it, how do we get it? The answer is yes, you'll never get it, but you'll change along the way. Even the great Rabbi Akiva, he says, I'm nothing in Torah. Well, if he's nothing, we're for sure nothing in Torah. Sure. But if Torah is accessing God's intellect, and just like God is infinite, God's intellect is infinite, it's never accessible to get it all anyhow. The only difference is, is that how much can I grab along the way? How much can I acclimate my mind to God's mind? Well, how do you do it? If you never, if, if you never stop, then maybe you'll change yourself in the maximum that you're able to do that. What it's telling us is, is, invest your thirst, so to speak, in Torah, if you make that what you desire and what you're passionate about, then you'll actually accomplish a lot. Once you are on this path of pursuing Torah thirstily, you'll never stop learning, you'll never stop improving, and you'll never stop growing. Thus concludes the Mishnah of Yoshi ben Uezer, how to get Torah. And in the next Mishnah, we're going to find how to get Kindness and thus complete this teaching of Shimonat of how to accomplish the three things upon which the world stands.